<laughs> this is for the tapes afterwards so that you guys can, yes. So equanimity, I'll begin by saying it's the, often the first practice that's taught when teaching the Brahma Viharas, especially in the Tibetan tradition where they start with sensing the beauty and possibility of all beings, of including all beings and also a quality of balance of mind. And on that foundation, they build the other Brahma Viharas. It doesn't matter which one you start with. I just think it's interesting to think of it as a foundation, where here it's called a culmin, it's kind of a culmination. I'll tell a little story about um, the, an insect, my relationship with a bug about equanimity that this past October, uh, my husband was going off to teach at the university and it was a kind of cold rain. And he yelled up from the car, he said, come down and look at what's on the steps. And there was this really long praying mantis there sitting on the steps. And then in the afternoon, it was still there. And we decided together that we would rescue it. And for various reasons, I have a kind of a plastic um, cage in the basement, or I did have one. So we put, the, I figured out I put some sand and stuff in a little twig, and we put the praying mantis in there. And then um, in the morning, I woke up and it was right at my place in the breakfast table. And it was like, oh my God, here's this thing. It was just hanging on the cage. And my husband had put it at my place because there was sun, a ray of sun there, and it would, he thought it would keep it warm. And I was like, oh God, I really don't want to see this before I've had coffee, <laughs> this huge thing. And then um, we thought, well, about it, and we thought, well, we better not put it back outside because all it's going to do is freeze to death. It's getting colder and colder, so I guess we should try and keep it alive, which led to um, going to a pet store, and which led to me going to a pet store, which is, I'm kind of like the mom or something, feeling like the mom a little bit now. And, buying some crickets for it and violating my precept against non-killing by wondering whose life is more valuable, these little crickets or the praying mantis. And feeling really bad for these innocent crickets until I read a little more on the internet and find out that if you get too many crickets, they'll eat the praying mantis. And, and watching it hunt them and kill them and eat them like alive, like just get them like this and then just eat it up. And like lots of different kinds of emotions are going on in all of this. <laughs> you know? Then I went to teach a day-long retreat, and this is kind of like the crowning blow. I'm, you know, I'm on my way home. I often will call and say, hey, honey, I'm on my way home. I'll be home in about an hour. La, la. And he said, it's laying eggs. <laughs> he was so happy, and he'd been like taking pictures of it. And it had this... <laughs> It had laid this giant egg case like the size of a shumai, like it looked quite a lot like a shumai or a wonton. And further Googling teaches us that 500 baby praying mantises, <laughs> and it's kind of like, oh, what are we gonna do? So then out of, out of kindness, we can't really put it back outside because now there's 501 Dalmatians in here. This situation is like, but I really am like, I am so not buying crickets for 500 praying mantises. <laughs> like, it's just not going to happen. So then I start thinking, like, okay, so what am I going to do? And 
engaging with the situation, really. And fortunately, we live near Harvard University, and it turns out there's someone who wanted this praying mantis for a photography project, and he took it over, and he took gorgeous pictures of it and its babies, and I learned more and more about it. And um, now I'm very interested in the world of insects, because this guy has a blog called The Smaller Majority that's always about these strange bugs that actually have no heads or things, toads or rats of different rats that are used as mines sweepers and just a very interesting like whole opening into another part of the world and yet I have to say that I never like truly loved the praying mantis I I was interested in her and I was willing to take care of her and it was kind of weird when I'd come in in the morning and she'd turn her head and look at me like <laughs> and I would think you know she's this is like looking at me this thing and if I were smaller it probably would eat me <laughs> I care for it, and it doesn't care for me, <laughs> kind of thing. And how much can I really get attached to this thing? But I felt very lucky in the outcome of finding like a proper home for her and all this stuff, you know. So I'm trying to illustrate with this that in life there's a certain balance between caring and the ability to let go, and also engaging in a situation like First, I felt like overwhelmed by my aversion for this creature and thinking like, no, no, you know, like, ugh, I cannot have this thing at the breakfast table. And um, I cannot look at that disgusting egg case and the pictures of how her abdomen was opening up to let it out. I have to tell you, you know, we're really <laughs> squeamy. And then to say like, all right, I'm going to sort of go into this. I'm going to go into it and work with it and, you know, be responsible to it. And then there was actual quality of some kind of really good outcome. I felt lucky that we discovered something to do that was that felt like, okay, so this has been taken care of, it's been done in a way, and it, we were lucky to have, you know, not to have to put her back outside or, you know, between the extremes of the thousands of crickets and the killing them, we found sort of a middle way. So the practice of equanimity has to do with actually being willing to engage and care as much as is needed, and then also find the place in the moment where it's correct to let go, which is different in every situation. Um, how much engagement is appropriate, how much letting go is appropriate, and it's a very delicate balance of sometimes staying with an unfolding reality where we don't really know what's next or what's right, and we may have the luxury of making a decision when all the information has arrived, or we may have to make a decision based on the best that we can do in a moment and just trust that we've done our best and then it may not guarantee that something works out, but at least we know we've done what we can do. And at that point, to be able to stop and rest. So we've noticed in the other Brahma Viharas, in the metta and compassion, and joy, Brahma Viharas, that there's a real engagement with self and other and a kind of mental attempt or wish to improve things, you know, to kind of make things better and to connect. And there's a kind of reaching out and connecting quality. And the reason that the equanimity practice is taught last in this is because there's a quality of wisdom that comes in to cut the subtle attachment that underlies each, it's sort of like the the little thing that rumbles underneath each Brahma Vihara, that although perfect loving kindness isn't really attached 
subtly there can be a quality of attachment that does arise, if only to the loveliness of the sensations of metta, the feeling of kindness that's there. Subtly in compassion, although aversion and cruelty sort of ruin it, it's still engaging with the difficult and our minds kind of feel that quality of being brought down a little bit. And I think we felt this a little in the um, groups this morning, not only that lots of feelings always come up in metta practice and lots of feelings always come up in retreats, but a kind of encouragement to engage with suffering and to bring kindness and shine the light right into suffering. It also does kind of make people cry and stuff, you know, it happens. So there's a heavy feeling in there. And the joy, as much as we say that it's not to be attached and to be completely open and all of that, we notice that um, Greg kept going longer because joy is so much fun. It's like you want to hear more about it and it's like so uplifting and it feels like finally some joy, you know, it's special and you just want it to keep increasing. And um, there's a sense of little desire that comes in and that of enjoyment of the joy. And not that there's anything criminal about, uh, criminal about any of this, but there are times when it feels like such a relief to just let it go, to just um, say that although I fully, fully care for you and myself and all of our happiness and all of our suffering, beyond a certain point, the amount that I care has absolutely no influence on what's gonna happen for myself or for someone else. This is a meditation practice that I often recommend to parents because of the need to let the child kind of be in its own space. And especially if a child is suffering, how hard that can be for the parent to really acknowledge that after a certain point, there's nothing we can do. Like we cannot intervene and we can, doesn't mean that we don't care. See, I think in our culture, we have this feeling that if you admit that you're powerless to influence the course of someone's life, it also means that you don't care. Like you have to keep proving somehow that you care by um, giving advice or trying to, you know, help or support or something like that, where sometimes what actually allows someone like a child to contact their own resources is the point where the parent says, okay, well, I guess there's no more I can do. And you will, you do have your own life, your own future, your own choices, and you're under your own command. Now, this is different at different ages, but it's actually true all through the life of a child. Um, And there's a sense of respect sometimes in this quality of equanimity when we relate to other beings. Like one of the phrases that I often use is, although I care for you completely, we each have our own journey. You have yours and I have mine. And um, it doesn't mean I don't care. I always add it on. I don't, it doesn't mean I don't care again at the end to just frame it in love, in the fullness of love. So both are true is recognizing the truth of things because we really cannot make decisions for other people. They seem to want to make their own decisions and they don't always want to be saved, unlike the bug whom I could trap in this <laughs> jar. Um, and there's something about admitting that or acknowledging that that actually is a form of loving even more loving that doesn't have a quality of self to it that admits the truth of things. I'll help you all that I can. I remember when this uh, girlfriend of mine and I agreed that if one of us was dating someone that the other one really didn't like that we would say so 
in the beginning, and then if the other one persisted in her attraction for the person and kept going out with them, that we would then support them, but that we would also really say, we would put, took it upon ourselves to say, like, you know, I'm not really like so fond of that guy, but if you're gonna go out with him, I'll keep on supporting you. It wouldn't be like sort of saying like, you can't see this person. So there's something about that, about also being willing to remain engaged and supportive in equanimity practice. This is equanimity as the Brahma Vihara, and I need to get the sheet over here. So let's look at the sheet a little bit together here. These are some phrases that are supportive of equanimity. Just to go through this, because you'll be taking it home, these are not the phrases that we'll be using in the guided meditation that I'm going to offer now, or they're not all the phrases. Um, in particular, because I, have, I see this one about all beings are the heirs of their karma, their happiness and unhappiness depend on their own actions more than on my wishes for them. Now that is a, could be a challenge to non-Buddhists and to people who are filled with skeptical um, curiosity about what the word karma actually means. Like, I don't personally um, use this phrase, to be honest, to say that um, everyone has their own situation to face works better for the way my mind works. It's a different way of saying errors of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depend on their own actions. To some extent, that's true. And I'd like to explain a little bit about how I feel that that's true and how I feel that it is not true, and even how the Buddha has said that it's not true. There's the popular understanding of karma is as if... um, it's an idea that whatever bad things happen to you are your own fault somehow. That's really not, that's not what the Buddha taught, and I don't think it's a helpful way of seeing it. The Buddha spoke of the possibility of natural calamities or mass events being outside of karma, and that there's lots of things about the ups and downs of life that are not necessarily attributable to personal, what you'd call personal karma. But there is an area in which the way that we relate to our experience is extremely influential. And I think some of the teachings of metta and loving kindness have shown you how that can be, that to relate to our experience without judgment and blame is a huge relief. That is the the extent of the teaching of karma that I think is very important. The uh, possibility that we have within our own mind of developing greater kindness and equanimity, that we do have a degree of choice in our life. And there is choice in places that in our ordinary education we don't really understand, which is what this practice is about, what this kind of spiritual or mental technology offers, is the possibility of influencing our experience of events. But it doesn't mean that we become all powerful over the outer waves of experience that come to us. Like His Holiness the Dalai Lama is a great example of that. He often says, you know, when people come to him and when he gives these huge teachings in stadiums and stuff, sometimes people will say, well, should I get my divorce? And he'll say, I don't know. You know, I'm not omniscient. And people often will say things to him, like imputing some kind of magical power to him. 
And he says, look, you know, like, if I had that kind of power, would I have lost my country the way I lost my country? <laughs> you know, like in some ways, he's had a very difficult and challenging life, like feeling responsible for this group of people. And then he'll laugh and he'll say, but you know, all of that's happened and I'm still pretty happy. That's what we're talking about, that kind of karma, the internal experience of being able to bear what might seem like tremendous misfortune with a kind of buoyancy and resiliency, not saying that it didn't happen or blocking it out or getting into some kind of crazy denial about it, but also not being crushed by it. So that buoyancy is actually one of the factors of equanimity where the quality of equanimity is able to see clearly what's true and yet not uh, get caught in the extremes of denial or distancing or repression or you know, catastrophizing about stuff. Between catastrophe and indifference, equanimity is there. Um, but also very engaged, not withdrawing, which was sort of like indifference. Does that make sense so far? So good? So that's the little thing about karma that I wanted to say, that how we relate to the world and our sort of our personal karmic vision is something that's quite more malleable than we might believe, like our degree of ability to be happy and to recover from events and to heal trauma and all of that, there's quite a lot of room available for detoxifying the mind, especially first in the moment, moment by moment, we see that we can kind of neutralize uh, some of the suffering. And also over the long term, our whole way of mental processing can change significantly. the quality of equanimity as a mindfulness quality. So there's the Brahma-vihara quality of saying that I love and I also acknowledge the truth about relationships or people that each of us is within our own situation using our resources as much as we can. Then there's the mindful aspect of equanimity where in a sense, each time we bring mindful awareness to a, a moment of experience, not blaming and not reacting, but just attempting to see clearly and with a quality of gentleness, non-reactivity, that's also creating a kind of balance in the mind. And normally the factor of equanimity is not naturally too abundant in human beings. Like there's a place in our mind where we're capable always of seeing what's going on for us or of experiencing very accurately and very fine grain what our experience is in any moment. Like we can know it, right? We can know what's happening right now. And we often overlook that little point of, of equilibrium that is just sort of what you might call pure consciousness that doesn't carry any distortion at all. We overlook it because of the clouds in the mind. And mindfulness, it's like kind of turning a, on a stronger light in that place of a very developed, effortful, practice of being to, able to guide our attention to something and recognize what our relationship is with it and to sort of you know, correct a little bit with a gyroscope and say like, oh, I see, you know, I see some anger here. And just in seeing the anger, clearly the anger kind of gets neutralized. It's like you become the observer instead of the participant. It's, mindfulness has this kind of magical power of creating a type of balance. 
one of the ways that mindfulness is described like this is in the phrase from the Thai forest tradition is, this is what it's like. Right now it's like this. That often uh, when we practice, we'll just keep using that phrase and almost like as a way of bringing the mind into focus of being able to admit and balance out like, oh, right now it's like this. It's just, it doesn't take anything away. It doesn't add or deny, but it brings the mind into contact, but also a kind of what might be called dispassionate or, you know, um, uncluttered relationship with what's going on. So as we turn on our channel of kindness, this capacity to let go into equanimity is also part of the practice. I guess the last thing I want to say about equanimity is the dilemma of benefiting oneself and benefiting others. Like within the seeing of that self and other are equal in their sort of deserving of love how we respond to situations should be inclusive of both. And there are times when the needs might be seen to compete. You know, there's some people tend more to default to take care of themselves and put themselves first. And those people need to learn to balance out with occasionally being able to give and empathize with another. And some people tend to leave themselves out of the equation of loving kindness or of taking care of the needs of which being and I think some of us go back and forth between grandiosity and self-abandonment, I think. <laughs> but I think if we look into our mind or our tendencies, we have the capacity to know, you know where along the scale we fall. If we need to learn to let go and let someone else have what they want sometimes and not be so desperate about making sure that everything's stable for myself. Or do we need to sometimes stand up for our own needs a little bit more? So equanimity can also be uh, brought to bear in this realm of balancing the needs of self and other. When my Tibetan teacher learned how hard it is for his students, Westerners, to offer loving kindness to ourselves, he said, well, maybe sometimes you should reverse the bodhisattva vow and serve yourself as if you were serving all beings. Sort of turn it around and put the same amount of dedication into taking care of yourself. Now, of course, he didn't mean that you then abandon or forget about the context or the many other beings, but just make sure that sort of there's an inclusive quality in your practice of loving kindness and compassion. So that's it for the intro. And we'll, um, if you would like. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.